LinkedIn News. There are lots and lots of different ways to make our work a little bit more fun. And if we can just remember that the goal is not to do the thing, the goal is to enjoy the process of doing the thing, that is really the secret to productivity. And it means you don't need to rely so much on discipline, grit, willpower, and all of those things that often tend to drain our energy. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Welcome back to The Better Blueprint for Your 2024. And if you missed our other episodes, go back and check them out. We covered emotional and physical health with some really incredible experts and storytellers. This week, we're focused on work health, productivity specifically. It's a word that promises to provoke lots of different reactions. Some of us live and breathe productivity. Others feel intimidated. Some might feel ashamed at not being productive enough, whatever that means. For me, the idea of being productive is a mix of exciting, inspiring, and honestly, it brings a little bit of shame. I've struggled with procrastination for so much of my life, which is really at odds with the idea of productivity and how much we worship productivity. The answer that used to come to mind when I wondered why I procrastinated was, it must be because I'm lazy, and that must mean I'm bad. Now, most of us probably know that's completely false, but many of the narratives that we've heard when it comes to productivity, work, and being good in the work that you do are around the idea of not being lazy, of getting things done. So I used to use tactics like trying to motivate myself or being so disciplined that I could outsmart my autopilot of procrastination or avoidance. And Ali Abdal is here this week to talk about how we can become more productive in a much more productive way. He went from being a doctor at a young age to refocusing his entire career on how we understand what actually makes each of us more productive because of all the misconceptions out there. After studying much of the psychological research, he discovered a few key things that he'll expand on for you. But here's a taste. There's a better way to be more productive than cracking the whip with discipline or trying to find momentary motivation. Procrastination has three blockers that perpetuate it. And there's a way to sustain productivity over a long period of time that won't wear you out. Here's Ali. The intention behind the work is really to sort of surface ideas that can help people level up in their lives, take steps towards building a life that they genuinely love. And I think it started because when I was 17 years old, I read <laughs> Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek, which seems to be an origin story for a lot of people. And that book gave me so many ideas that I just had never come across before and put me on a life trajectory that got me into entrepreneurship, helped me build a business when I was in medical school, helped me kind of transition that into the YouTube channel and writing books. And it was just that one book that just with the right set of ideas at the right time, just changed the trajectory of my life completely. 
And so I love the power of books and ideas and being able to do that. And when I think of what's the impact that I want to have on the world, it often comes down to that. Like if I can have even a fraction of the impact on people that that book by Tim Ferriss had on me, then that would be really cool. And over the years, I've had so many people come up to me in real life. You know, your videos helped me study for my exams or helped me get into medical school. It's cool to surface these ideas in a way that people can hear in, in the format that they want to hear them in. Okay, so when you said level up, it reminded me of sometimes what I notice about the way that people approach productivity, which is this overdrive, this intensity that takes the fun out of doing the thing that you're doing. And your work and this book is all about how to reinsert some level of joy, play, fun, and some structure into how we go about what we do. Yeah, I think I also have weird feelings about the phrase level up. I, I think about this a lot. I used to play a lot of video games when I was younger. And I loved those sorts of role-playing games where you get to be a warlock and like slay demons and dragons and stuff. And I did some research into what is it that makes video games so fun and so addictive. Because you never hear people say, oh man, I need so much discipline to play a video game. I need so much motivation to play a video game. Because it's just fun. There's something about video games that is inherently addictive and inherently feel good. And one of the big things is this idea of leveling up, the idea that you can see yourself and feel yourself making progress. Um, and in, in the research I've done that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with as well around intrinsic motivation, the feeling that we are getting better, the feeling of competence, the feeling of leveling up is a profound driver of intrinsic motivation. But then in video games, there's like different ways to level up. One way to level up is by grinding by just going in the same area and killing the same monster again and again and again and again, and you're just grinding, and it's, it feels like hard work, and it's boring, and you're watching the experience bar slowly trickle up over time. And that is a very not fun way to play a video game. But the other way to level up is to go on with the storyline, to have a wider mission that you're working towards, to go on quests, to go on side quests, to follow your curiosity and explore the area a little bit more. You get XP points for discovering a new area, for discovering a random cave that might have a goblin in it guarding a treasure chest. And people who play video games like that with that air of curiosity, they also level up, but they enjoy the process a lot more. So I love the idea of video games as it applies to real life. What does the quest and side quest and curiosity version of leveling up look like in the storyline of our work and our lives? rather than the grind, I'm just going to kill that monster again and again and again in the hope that something good will come out of it. I haven't played in so long. <laughs> you reminded me of playing like Zelda so long ago. And I am totally that person who would like go off on a side quest and do something totally weird and different and not be going at the thing straight on. Some people might say like, that doesn't make sense. The leveling up piece, I love that point of like, it's not a straight line. And when I brought up the productivity idea and the idea of leveling up and how those phrases oftentimes freak people out. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who was like, I hate the phrase peak performance, right? It's like kind of all lumps into the same sort of thing that as you're describing and talking about motivations and bringing up the idea of intrinsic and extrinsic, I do think there's a way that we externalize how we're validated by being productive or by leveling up. And those are very different experiences than internally going, oh, I was really good at what I did today because I cared about my productivity and I approached it in this way. Or God, in the last year, I just trained for a half marathon and ran it over the weekend. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did experience progress, but it wasn't about everybody else knowing that I was doing it. It was about knowing I could do it. When you're approaching productivity and you approached writing this book and doing this work, what's the story that got you to this point of deciding that this is what you had to lean into? Back when I was in medical school, I realized that in high school, I managed to coast by being able to do well in the exams without having to study too hard. 
But then when I got to medical school, I was hit with a ton of bricks because I realized that the strategies that had worked for me up until that point were just not working anymore. And I found myself working really hard and not making very much progress. And it felt quite grindy. But then in medical school, I kind of discovered that there is a whole field of psychology dedicated to figuring out how to improve your memory and how to learn and understand things more efficiently. And so by diving into the research on that, I came across some evidence-based study techniques, which I then applied to my life. And they were completely transformational for me because they freed up all my time. Because now I was learning the same stuff, but having way more fun and putting in a lot less effort just because I knew the right strategies. But then when I started working full-time as a doctor, I had that kind of brick wall thing again, where every day felt like a grind. Because when you're working, suddenly going into work is no longer optional, like it once was when you were a student. And the grind every day of like 12-hour, 13-hour, 14-hour shifts, not having the energy when I got home from work to work on my YouTube channel and my business, because I had these things I was doing on the side. That after a few months of this, I was getting quite down, definitely a bit burned out. And I thought, you know what, let me try and figure out, does being a doctor have to feel like a grind? And because I had the experience from my studies, I started diving into the psychology of this and I came across Barbara Fredrickson's work. I came across more stuff in positive psychology, the broaden and build theory and all these ideas that led me down this route of realizing that work doesn't have to feel like a grind. And just changing the way that I approached it and by doing a few practical things, I could turn my work into a source of energy rather than an energy drain. I started to actively focus on trying to enjoy my work and I kind of don't like the word enjoy because it's easy to dismiss as so you're just trying to make it fun. You know, being a doctor can be really hard, really stressful. You're dealing with life and death. But there is always a way to find more enjoyment in that and to enjoy the present moment with it a lot more. And when I started incorporating that into my life, I started finding myself with all this energy. I wouldn't be looking at the clock anymore while I was at work. I'd be enjoying it. And then most of the days I'd get home and I'd have enough energy to be able to then work on my business and my YouTube channel, which is when kind of my business started to take off. And then people kept asking me, hey, how are you so productive? How do you, how do you do all this stuff? But really, the one secret that I've always found is if you can find a way to make whatever you're doing feel good, make it a little bit more enjoyable, then productivity almost takes care of itself. And it feels like a lot less of a grind that requires a lot less discipline. And so the book was basically an exploration of that. Like, how do you practically do that? How do you actually find more enjoyment and get more energy out of your work? Okay, so I want to talk about these ideas because I don't know a single person who would say they don't want more energy or they don't want to feel better about their work or they don't want to feel good while also getting things done. What's your headline for how we need to reframe the idea of being productive? Yeah, so there's three words that I think about when it comes to productivity. And those are intentional, enjoyable, and sustainable. Everything I do in life, I try and make intentional, enjoyable, and sustainable. So intentional because I think it's very easy to go on autopilot and to be following a path that maybe we started out when we were in school or started out in college, depending on what classes we took. And if we don't question what path we're actually on, we can find ourselves climbing a ladder only to realize that we were up against the wrong wall to begin with. So I think intentionality is a big part of it. I think sustainable is a huge part of it because increasingly in today's world, a lot of the gains that come in business and in life and in work come from compound interest over a very long period of time. And so the people that can do something and just do it forever or do it for decades or do it for at least a few years while improving and leveling up along the way are way more likely to be successful, however you define success, than the people that sort of try a dozen different things and like go really hard initially and then they burn out and then they try something else and go really hard initially and burn out. And with everything, there's that ramp up period where you've got to stick it out and you've got to 
be able to durably sustain it over time to get the most meaningful returns. And there's a, a phrase from Peter Thiel that I really liked. He's done a lot, of, a lot of work into studying what makes companies successful. And one of the things he says in, in his lectures is that by far the vast majority of the enterprise value of a company comes at least 10 years after the company has been started. And in the world of startups and stuff, you know, we're all about like month-to-month -month growth and 2xing and 3xing every year. But actually, if a company can be sufficiently durable and sustainable long enough to experience the benefits of compounding growth, that's really where the value is unlocked. And so I think that applies to life as well. You know, whether it's starting a business or a YouTube channel or getting ahead in your career or whatever the thing might be, if you find a way to make it sustainable, you're way more likely to achieve whatever goals you had than if you go really intense and do it in a way that causes you to burn out. And I think the thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. Because you and I have both spoken to loads of people who are super successful, super rich, decamillionaires, centimillionaires, billionaires. And what they all say is that the journey is the destination. No one is happier once they sell their company. They, they generally are way happier and feel way more fulfilled on the journey of building that company. And so if we can find a way to make our work more enjoyable, not only does it generate more energy and more productivity and creativity for us, but it also makes the process more sustainable. And it also means that when we get to whatever the destination is, we don't have this hollow sense of what was the point of all of that. We actually enjoyed the process along the way, and that's good for our productivity, but also good for our life. I love that, the three-prong, intentional, enjoyable, sustainable. So you also talk about the blockers to productivity, so the things that get in our way. You talked about procrastination, which I think is really meaningful because I think we've done a really good job at making it seem like those who procrastinate are lazy or don't want to get anything done. And as a procrastinator myself and someone who has been that way for years, that is absolutely untrue. Most people feel like they have procrastinated on something at some point in their lives, right? So we all do it at some point in time. Do we need to get these blockers out of the way before we can approach the idea of intentional, enjoyable, sustainable productivity? And what are the blockers? Yeah, I don't like the idea that procrastination means that there is something wrong with the individual. This is also partly why I don't like the whole discipline narrative, because if you're struggling with something, you know, the discipline bros will tell you that you've just got to be more disciplined. And they never tell you how. And it feels like almost this thing that's like innate within you. And you're like, I'm not that disciplined. And I find it hard to get up and go for a run at four o'clock in the morning. It's like, don't worry. So does the vast majority of the human population. But I think doing a bunch of reading into the psychology of this, I boiled it down to three main blockers that block our feel-good productivity and that cause us to procrastinate. Now, before I go into, into the blockers, it's not a prerequisite necessarily that we solve these. A lot of people are very productive and yet still procrastinate. But if we can stop ourselves from procrastinating by addressing the blockers, then it makes whatever we're doing more intentional, more sustainable, and, and more enjoyable. So the blockers are three things, uncertainty, fear, and inertia. And they usually rock up in that order for people. So uncertainty is where you're procrastinating from something because there is some uncertainty in your mind about what the thing actually is that you're trying to do. There's a scene from The Office where Jim's boss asks him to get a rundown of the clients. And he spends <laughs> all day trying to figure out, like, let me get a rundown of the clients. And at the end of the day, he goes to his boss and he's like, what does that even mean? So I think like, he calls his dad and yeah. says, what's a rundown or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and we get this so often in, in our day-to-day -day lives as well. You know, it happens all the time at work. I used to have this a lot when I was working as a doctor because the senior consultant would ask for some sort of scan from radiology, be like, hey, get a CT with contrast for this patient. And I'd be like, okay, now I need to somehow convince the radiologist that like this patient needs a CT with contrast. But like, why does the patient need a CT with contrast? I'm not entirely sure. And I like don't want to ask because it's going to make me sound dumb. And then I procrastinate from it because I know this phone call is going to be difficult because I don't even know what I'm asking for. And all I would have had to do is 
had the courage to say to the senior, it'd be like, sorry, can I just ask, why are we getting a CT with contrast? And now I've got that information. But A, in the workplace, it's hard to ask. I think also, even with personal things, a lot of people struggle to become healthy. But what does become healthy and get fit even mean? If there is uncertainty about what is the thing we are actually trying to do and what it looks like, it's basically never going to happen because there's so much cognitive friction to even getting started with the thing. Because A, you have to then figure out what the thing is. And then B, you have to you know, summon up the willpower to make a start on it. And so the way I think about uncertainty is to just define what my next action is and make sure it's on the calendar. I did a podcast interview with a guy called Professor Tim Pitchell, who has literally studied procrastination at Carlton University for decades. And I asked him if he ever struggles with procrastination. And he said that he doesn't anymore because he just boils it down to what is the next action and then when am I going to do it? And so usually if I'm talking to someone who's struggling with procrastination, I ask them to show me their calendar. And oftentimes the thing that they are struggling with procrastination from is not in the calendar. If it's not in the calendar, it's a very easy action step to just put it down. And it's just amazing how often that works and almost treat it like an appointment with yourself, just like you treat a meeting with a colleague or, or anything like that. We'll be right back with Ali Abdal. But before we go to break, let's hear from our listeners on how they're planning to improve this year. I'm Imani. I am from Brooklyn, New York. And in 2024, I would like to be better at advocating for myself. I think that a big part of the reason that I don't advocate for myself is that I believe that when I stand up, people will shoot me down and I'll say, hey, I can do that. And they'll say, actually, no, you can't. You suck. And that hasn't really been what has happened in the moments when I have stood up for myself. And so over the next year, I would really like to just ingrain the idea that I have permission to speak up and to feel emboldened to do that. Because I know that when I have done it in the past, it has generally turned out in the way that I want and that the things that I'm afraid of are really unrealistic. My name is Enrique. I'm in New York. And the thing that I want to get better at in 2024 is setting boundaries between work and life. And by doing that, I mean I want to be able to blend the two as opposed to having a balance and setting boundaries of when work stops and when life starts. And I plan on doing this by simple things such as setting time aside for personal things as opposed to just saying I'll get to it when I am done with work. I think equally if you set an agenda for work, you can easily set an agenda for life. And my goal is to create those boundaries for myself so I know when I can start something and when I can stop something. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Ali Abdal. The uncertainty piece in the procrastination makes perfect sense. You don't ask the question. You don't quite know what you're trying to accomplish. You have to set some sort of very clear, what am I doing and when is it going to get done? What about the fear that comes up when we procrastinate in the moment where we're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Can I do this? All the like negative self-talk we have. Yeah. So fear is probably the most insidious one because it's the hardest one to solve. Uncertainty, you can solve it by literally just putting it in your calendar and inertia. We can talk about some strategies for that too. But fear is really hard because fear has all of this critical self-talk, all of this self-worth and emotions and that comes up. There's this idea that the evolutionary brain is a survival machine. And even though our society has evolved over the last, let's say, 10,000 years, our brains haven't really evolved that much. And so our brains are still wired to believe that any threat, especially social threats, are a potential risk to our lives. Back in the day in the caveman era, in the savannah or whatever, if the leader of the tribe didn't like the way you said something for whatever reason, you might get ostracized from the tribe. And that would mean you no longer have protection and you no longer have housing and you're going to get mauled by a lion. And so the amygdala of the brain got very good at being attuned to these social risks. And so the thought of giving a speech in public, the thought of stepping outside a comfort zone, the thought of starting to write articles online and post them on LinkedIn or wherever, feels really scary for a lot of people because it's like, oh my God, I'm putting myself out there. I'm suffering the risk of rejection and my brain is interpreting that as a genuine risk to my survival. So a lot of the strategies around overcoming fear are basically to recognize that we're no longer in the savannah, we're not likely to be mauled by a saber-toothed tiger for having the audacity to write a slightly cringy post on LinkedIn. All that's going to happen is that our coworkers might snigger a bit and then they'll get over it. And so a lot of the strategies around overcoming fear are to figure out what actually is the fear, so name it. And I find it really helpful to write things down in journal because when our thoughts are on paper, we can kind of see them for what they are. If we write in our journal, I'm afraid to do this speech because I'm afraid I'll mess up. And if I mess up, everyone will laugh at me and I'll look like an idiot and I'll never get a job ever again. You know, seeing that written down makes us realize that, okay, this thought pattern is a little bit dodgy. Okay, so let's say I write this down. I'm afraid of this speech and I write down, I'm afraid of this because people are going to think something about me and then I will never end up getting work again and all these things that take us into this crazy, you know, catastrophic thing that's going to happen because of this one article you write or this one speech you do. What do we do next? So now we're like, okay, this is a crazy thought. It's down in my journal and I'm still not ready to just go and do it next week. Yeah. The first one is to reduce the impact of the fear. And so one strategy I really like for that is to imagine yourself in the position of the audience. So the way I'd be thinking about it is, okay, I'm scared to give this public speech because I'm worried people will think less of me if I do it and I'll lose my job. 
Okay, let me imagine I was in the audience where someone else came up and gave a speech and maybe the speech wasn't very good. Would I think that the person is incompetent and that they should lose their job? Probably not. Like, I probably wouldn't give it a second thought. I hear boring speeches all the time. Half the meetings I go to are pretty boring. Half the lectures I attend are pretty boring. I don't even give one ounce of brain power to judging the other person because I'm busy with my own stuff. I've got my own meeting coming up. I've got my own to-do list. We realize that most people are just not thinking about us. And there's this thing in psychology called the spotlight effect which is the idea that we all walk around the world acting and feeling as if there's a spotlight trained on us at all times. And that if we make the slightest faux pas, the slightest mistake, people are out there to judge us. And broadly, no one cares. There's that quote that's often attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt, which is, we wouldn't worry so much of what others think of us when we realize how seldom they do. So that's strategy number one. But then the other thing is a strategy that I came across when reading about Adele. So Adele, the singer, used to really struggle with stage fright. And she used a technique that's often known as the Batman method by one study, where you kind of imagine yourself as a different person to who you actually are. So for Adele, she imagines herself as this person called Sasha Carter, who's like an amalgamation of two singers that she admired. And in the early days of her career, when she hadn't overcome this fear, she imagines herself as this alter ego who's fearless and who's powerful and who's strong. And so it's not Adele on stage, it's Sasha Carter on stage. And there's a cool study that talks about this, where they basically got a bunch of kids in a classroom. They split them up into groups. And they got the groups to do various tasks. But one of the groups, they asked to pretend like they were a cartoon character like Batman or Dora the Explorer. And the other group, they told to do some other thought experiment. And they found that the kids who imagined themselves as being Batman or Dora the Explorer performed better on the task because it involved stepping outside their comfort zone. And they also enjoyed the task more. And so a bunch of kind of famous people over the years have figured out that if you can try and embody some kind of alter ego, it's one of the things that helps overcome the fear of fear. It's one of the things that helps overcome the fear that causes us to procrastinate. And I do this myself, these glasses that I'm wearing. I don't know if people will see this on video, but these glasses are actually fake because I've had laser eye surgery. But when I wear the glasses, you know, I think of myself as young Charles Xavier from the X-Men series. It's a bit grandiose, but love it. I love his vibe. <laughs> he's a cool guy. He's very friendly. He's a good teacher. And I'm like, great. Whenever I put on my glasses, I am stepping into that alter ego and that helps reduce the fear when I'm doing a podcast or giving a speech or, or filming a YouTube video. That's so cool. And it's really simple. I didn't know that about Adele. So I love hearing it's like, oh, just coming up with a different way of approaching the thing you're trying to approach as someone else allows you to get out of all your own stuff. So tell me about inertia, because that's the third one. And I think a lot of people struggle with this. So how do we overcome that? Yeah. So the final blocker is inertia. So once we've got the thing in the calendar and once we've done whatever shenanigans we need to do in our mind to overcome the fear of doing the thing, the only thing left is to just make a start. And we've all had that experience that it feels like a big deal to get started with something. But usually once we've gotten started, then we kind of continue. And this is the law of inertia that it takes a lot more energy to get started with something than it does to keep going with it. The way we overcome inertia is by literally just making it as easy as possible to just do the thing for five minutes. So that can involve reducing the amount of friction there is. I often procrastinate from playing the guitar. And I'm like, okay, it's in the calendar. I guess I should because I want to get better at the guitar. And I know what I need to do. And I discovered this for myself after I read Atomic Habits a few years ago because I realized that the guitar was just too far away from me. It was, at the time I was in my living room in Cambridge, it was like on the other side of the living room. And so the thought of getting up and walking across the room like five steps to get the guitar, that was too much friction. And so I just moved the guitar next to my desk and it was just always next to my desk. So now whenever I had a spare moment or whenever I had it in my calendar, I would literally just pick it up. And it's like simple things like that just help reduce the friction a little bit to reduce the inertia. The other big one is the five minute rule where you tell yourself you're just going to do a thing for five minutes and you can set a timer on your phone. I used to have a five-minute hourglass on my desk that I bought for like 
three pounds or like four dollars off of Amazon. And that was one of the highest ROI purchases of my life because whenever I'd find myself procrastinating, I would just be like, you know what, five minutes. I would turn the hourglass over and I would just tell myself genuinely, I'm just going to do this until the time runs out. But then usually I didn't even notice the time run out because I was now engrossed in the task because I'd find a way to make it enjoyable and intentional and stuff. And so this is where I think willpower and discipline can be used, where you do a thing even though you don't feel like it. That's totally fine for getting started with something. It takes that little bit of a push to put your running shoes on and leave the house. It might take a little bit of a push of discipline to get yourself to the gym. But once you're there, you don't want to rely on discipline to be the thing that's sustaining you because that's where it becomes unsustainable. So I think this is where the idea of willpower and accountability buddies comes in. And all of these are ways to overcome the inertia, but just to recognize that getting started is the hardest part. And if we can just do whatever we can to just get started, chances are our productivity will take care of itself. When you talk about the blockers, the solution to them, I know it's not always easy, but it is so simple, which is really nice. And I think you would agree, but it's like as you start to study more of the psychology behind why we do the things we do and why we don't do the things we want to do, it's often the simplest things that will shift us out of that feeling of I'm not doing what I want to do or I'm not hitting my potential. It's not like only a few people in the world can actually make this happen for themselves. What you're describing, which is a system of ways to get around Sometimes the brain that's not helping us do what we want to do. And so it's sort of like, how do we get our minds to become more of our servants than our masters? Because the idea of uncertainty and just the quick answer of go figure out what it is you need to do next. That's it. The idea of fear and being like, okay, let me write this down and maybe I can take on a different persona, pretend I'm someone else doing this that I respect or who I think would be more confident in it. And then the inertia, it's just set a timer for five minutes and go do it. Like all this stuff is so simple, right? But in the moment, it feels monumental and it keeps us from doing so many things that I think a lot of us want to do, but we'll find ways to distract and avoid so that we don't have to feel the disappointment of not getting it done because we procrastinate. Yeah, absolutely. I really like this idea of treating yourself as a system. I dabbled with computer programming back in the day and web development. If the code didn't work, I wouldn't think, oh my God, my computer is being so mean and I'm never <laughs> going to figure this out. I would think, okay, the code doesn't work because there's a problem with the code. There's some kind of problem with the system that means this code is not executing. And I think of myself in the same way as I'm just a system. If my intention is to work out three times a week and I am not working out three times a week, it's not a problem with me. It's not like I'm personally defective. It's that the system that runs my life has a bit of a bug in it. So what can I do? Can I make it the first thing I do in the mornings? Let's experiment with that and see if that works. Can I get a personal trainer? Let's experiment. Can I join CrossFit? Because I've heard that that makes it fun. Treating myself as a bit of a, a test case to run experiments on and realizing that, oh, actually, if I have on my home screen, there's an app called Streaks, which is a habit tracker. And it just reminds me every day that I should exercise for half an hour. And just that being the first thing I see when I open my phone means I'm always reminded, oh, and then I think, let me put it in my calendar and I'll put it in the calendar. And then it's like just figuring out these little tweaks to the system makes an enormous difference. It's just these small, tiny tweaks that can really change the way that we approach our lives. You talked about this idea of sustainability, and I want to kind of pull this through of like, how do we continue this process once we started to unearth our blockers and move forward and becoming more intentional, finding ways to make our work enjoyable? In the sustainability piece, you talked about something I love, which is called the Wheel of Life. For those who don't know, the Wheel of Life is typically an eight-sectioned wheel that houses all of the areas of your life in which you might think about and you might have desires around and you might want to look at when you think about living a meaningful life. In yours, you talk about the idea of filling out the Wheel of Life 
deciding the areas that you would want to see improve, and then creating a 12-month celebration, which I loved. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I think that's what may help us all think about how to make our systems be sustainable in the long term. Absolutely. So for me, I split it up into work, health, and relationships, just to keep it simple. And then within work, there's mission, money, and growth. Within health, there's physical, mental, spiritual. And with relationships, there's romance, family, and friends. But, you know, different people split up the wheel of life into different categories. And then you rate out of 10 each area to see how happy are you with how that particular area of your life is going. So when I did my wheel of life yesterday, I put physical health as like a six out of 10. And that was an area I wanted to improve in. You know, romantic relationship, I was a nine. Friends, you know, I probably should see my friends more often. So that was a five. And so essentially for each of the lowest areas, I ask myself, what would I like to be celebrating 12 months from now? And the nice thing about framing it that way is that's basically asking, what is your goal for the year? But there's something about framing it as a celebration where the way I think of it is I imagine myself sitting across my best friend and having dinner and we're both celebrating the progress we've made in different areas of our life over the last 12 months. And so for me in the health front, I wanted to get my body fat percentage down because I've heard that's like bad for your health and I've not been taking great care of my health. And that's the thing I'd love to celebrate. And that sets a goal. And whenever we have a goal, it's like we know where we are now and where we'd like to be. Now it's pretty easy to figure out what are the three to five things that I need to do to get to that point. And you can do that basically with every area of life. And I find that doing a wheel of life and just doing this assessment every few months is just a way of making sure that the important areas of my life are balanced and in alignment. I think if you're the sort of person who listens to this podcast, you probably, like me, and probably like Leah, over-index on the work front. And people like us are very liable to screw up our personal lives because we have been focusing on work too much. And so for me, when I look at my wheel of life and I'm like, I really want to spend more time with my friends and family. I really should take better care of my physical health. Those are the areas where I then actively set goals and apply the principles of productivity because generally my work stuff, it takes care of itself. But the thing I struggle with is the health and relationship side. There's two things I noticed when I started doing the wheel of life. I was doing it for myself as I was becoming a coach. One of the things that is really important when you're doing it is there is this zero to 10 scale of like how satisfied are you with this particular area, but not everybody has to be at a 10 to be satisfied in their lives. I've noticed there are people who are like, okay, being at a seven, that's satisfaction for me. So I would just say that as a note for people that the goal isn't that every single area is a 10 unless that is truly your goal. But there are people who say, I'm okay, this is enough for me. But I think that's the conversation we're having, too, is when it comes to productivity, to leveling up what is enough and that there is an enough so that we can experience satisfaction versus always going, I don't have something that I want. I have to go get it. And the other thing I noticed, too, is, you know, physical health is actually a really good example. It's when I had a tougher time trying to frame this around. But I did notice with, for example, with money. It's not just that the goal in 12 months is that you have $50,000 in savings today and 12 months you want to have 100000 It's like, how do you change your own relationship to money also that I think has a really powerful impact? So it's not just that something external happens and then you're happy, right? Because it's easy to get caught up in that. It's also like, how can I change the way I am viewing this thing so that I can find contentment along the way and maybe even contentment without anything changing externally? Yeah, I've definitely noticed that, especially on the money point. I think when I was younger and earlier in my entrepreneur career, I thought that there would be a sort of magic number that, oh, if I can just hit that number, then something good will happen. But thankfully, because I'm obsessed with reading books about this stuff and blog posts and things, I have reframed my relationship with it to the point that I feel I don't feel that need to 
make more and more, especially if that comes at the expense of physical health, mental health relationships, the more important things. And often people say that you need to go through the journey of kind of screwing up your personal life for the sake of acquiring money to then realize, hang on, wasn't the point. But I don't think you necessarily need to go through that journey. If you read enough about it, listen to enough podcasts, listen to enough interviews of rich people saying the same thing and speaking to people, that actually is a substitute for personal experience. When I was younger in my entrepreneur career, the goal was to, sure, to grow my business, but also to enjoy the journey along the way. And because I had that as a goal, I don't look back at my time and regret anything. Whereas there are a lot of entrepreneurs I know who have a lot more money than I do who regret the way that they spent their time because it resulted in their health or their relationships getting destroyed. Gosh, that's such a good point. So it's like continuing on the journey, as you've talked about, just to make sure that you're continuing to align with yourself with what you've learned and bring yourself back, even when other people may be doing something very different and recognizing they're going to have their own way of learning that lesson and it may not have to be yours. Ali, what would you say, like, as you think about the book and your work and what you're continuing to do and all of this amazing research that you've done and put together, what do we have to know about how to do more of what matters to us? If there's one thing that I want people to take away that I've really taken away and have to continue to remind myself, the secret to productivity is not discipline, it's a joy. It's finding a way to make your work feel good, to be a little bit more fun. Next time you are struggling with something, it feels like a grind, just take a step back and ask yourself, what would this look like if it were fun? And that is a post-it note that I, I had that written on a post-it note and I, I used to have it on my computer monitor before I went on my world travels uh, a couple of months ago. What would this look like if it were fun? And I would see that post-it note and it would remind me, oh yeah, I don't need to treat this so seriously. I don't need to treat this with as much importance. The stakes aren't actually that high. And even if they are, like, I'm sure there is something I can do to make this thing a little bit more enjoyable. Like, there are lots and lots of different ways to make our work a little bit more fun. And if we can just remember that the goal is not to do the thing, the goal is to enjoy the process of doing the thing, that is really the secret to productivity. And it means you don't need to rely so much on discipline, grit, willpower, and all of those things that often tend to drain our energy. Awesome. I love this. All right, Ali, I'm going to have you complete these three statements for me. Better humans are? Better humans are intentional. Better work is? Better work is enjoyable. A better world has? People who are taking steps to build a life that they love so that they can give back to the world. Love that. You could have said sustainable, by the way. I was like, he could have made that work if he wanted to. <laughs> I could have worked. I was thinking I about was that. wondering. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Ali. This was great. Yeah, walking away with, of course, a lot of notes. But my favorite being thinking of ourselves as a system and not beating ourselves up for the challenges that we see in the system, but just changing the system. I think that's a really great way of framing up how we work, how we live, and how we achieve more of what we want. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. That was Ali Abdal, Feel Good Productivity Enthusiast. You can find his book, Feel Good Productivity, wherever you like to buy them. Check out his YouTube channel, Ali Abdal, and his podcast, Deep Dive with Ali Abdal. One big thing before we go. Productivity is really about prioritizing what's most important and choosing how you're going to progress. With all of these strategies and hacks that Ali mentions, and I'm sure many others you've heard before, 
Just keep in mind that we're all playing a game of trial and error with how we can best get the things done that need to be while we feel good. So check out his book, try some of it out, go easy on yourself, and enjoy being productive. If this conversation resonated with you, share it with the first person who comes to mind. You never know how it could help them out. And support other people like you in finding our show by leaving us a rating before you go. While you're at it, write a one-sentence review telling me and the team what you love about Everyday Better. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Asaf Gijron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.